Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. How are you, brother? Very good. How are you? Doing well. It's nice to finally have you on. Thank you. Thank you so much. No problem. How was it yesterday? You mentioned there was a, some sort of emergency at the business. Is everything okay? Yeah, it's, it's good. But these days, you got to deal with things <clears throat> minute by minute, day by day, week by week. So, How are things uh, with Paramount right now in terms of this whole well, I mean, I mean, it's it's good in general. I mean, we're not a takeout a place mostly. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're mostly sit-down dining. But <clears throat> in general, uh, takeout is turning out to be very well. Mm-hmm. The, the move that I made on lowering prices when the Canadians are tight cash flow-wise, it had worked very well for us. I mean, definitely by just for the pandemic, the whole situation, the way it was, it did force us to close a lot of locations because we're in airports, hospitals, universities, schools. Uh, yeah, I just uh, saw the Instagram page. Uh, one location yeah. is actually uh, at 100 King, which is where I'm at as well. Yeah, yeah. So is that one still going to be open or is that one kind of? No, no, they, they, they will all reopen. But for now, during the, the pandemic, we had to close eight, 70% of our location because better located you are, more controlled you are by the landlord. So it's hard to get locations in airports and universities and hospitals. But once something like this happened, you, you don't actually decide your, your own destiny. So you're part of a bigger group and you have to work with them. Yeah, that's what we're just hearing a lot of these restaurants. Some of them, unfortunately, have to close down or move on to something else but some of them are finding ways to actually deal with this and still work in the business like uh, you're doing your takeout and uh, hashtag dare to care campaigns um, I see some of the restaurants uh, like Sugo they're doing their own community work where they're helping out hospitals and they're feeding first-line staff so that's great uh, which other things are you doing in terms of trying to I guess work with this pandemic as you know I'm involved in a lot of things uh before the pandemic and after the and within the pandemic mm-hmm. so uh, the first thing we did immediately is uh, the first period of time for the first four weeks we said we're going to study it week by week but we're going to help our staff especially the one that they're ill we're going to pay them in full especially the one they're looking after an elderly or ill we're going to look after them for full and after even in the time where it got really difficult uh, and everybody else tried to lay off when we had to do things like this, we actually got a permit to top up, to top up our staff that they don't want to work anymore because a lot of the staff said it's risky to work. We do not want to put our family at risk. So, and please lay us off. So when we laid them off, we got a permit to top them up. So they don't only take 55%, they take much more, nice. bigger percentage of their salary. Uh, right away, immediately, even before dealing with the staff, uh, Paramount for the last 12 years, we've been out there and doing a lot of uh, basically 50% for EMS, 50% for police department. Since our inception, we've done that. So we only extended that to the medical staff and the frontline worker and the emergency worker that are in the hospital. That was did not include the hospital. It did include the pandemic, but, but didn't include the hospital work. So that was very important for us to do. And then right away, right after I got involved with Feed the Heroes, Feed Our Heroes with Russell, and we were one of his main partners in that. Uh, and uh, then we got involved with the Grocer Hero, uh, where volunteers are shopping for doctors and nurses for their houses for the grocery. And we're going to have a big announcement with them very soon because now we're, take, we're going national on that. 
So um, then I got involved with the Conquer COVID-19. Mm-hmm. We have fed around over 12,000 meals so far during the pandemic. Good stuff. To shelters and frontline. And the last is uh, when the city of Mississauga, the mayor, called me and said, we need your help. The food bank need help and they're running out of supply and money. And we need money because taking food in is very dangerous now. So we want to make sure we get the funds so we can feed all the people. And over $360,000 a month has added because a lot of people lost their job, lost their businesses. So they actually start using the food bank. And we started that campaign. That campaign is still going on now as we speak. We have raised around uh, $650,000 so far. Another only 200000 to go. So hopefully we'll, in a week or two, we'll announce that we made it happen as well for the food bank. So Alhamdulillah has been great uh, what's happening. It's very difficult to find something to call a great within the time of a pandemic. Uh, a lot of people have a problem finding or believing the light will come. And I'll always say, I've lived in bunkers in my life in the civil war in Lebanon. And we used to sleep nights in dark, bunkers, dark smelly bunkers. It was scary. But I'll never forget the look on my dad's face. And uh, when we came out of the bunkers, he used to be smiling, walking out as if, as if he's rushing to go out somewhere and saying, we're going to build this country back again. We'll hire more people again. And we'll build more businesses. And he did. And uh, the light will come. The light will come to Canada. In Canada, uh, we have showed that we are that great country, that everyone have a reason why we come here. And we struggle three years of changing our lives, coming from somewhere else, because this country is worth it. And definitely we showed that in the pandemic. And to everyone that doesn't see the light, trust me, from someone coming out of a civil war, the light will come. And we'll build businesses again. It'll be different. It'll take some time, but we'll come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a bit about the time when you were in Lebanon. How was life growing up? How did it even all get started? Well, it's just the fact that you can't build or have a plan for five years for your life, 10 years for your life. Like I, I, I studied in Italy. I left Lebanon running away from the civil war to study and finish. I'm, I'm a gemologist. Right, I, I, I'm an expert of diamond and jewelry and uh, precious stone, uh, stones. And um, so I went, I studied in Italy, and then I ran back home thinking that got better in Lebanon. And a year after, start working, opened a business there, family business with my family. But it didn't work because the war started again. We had to shut down again. So I realized that you can't have a five-year plan for your life. And a friend of mine was in Canada. I came here to visit him and help him in his company. And walking around, I felt like I wanted to stay. My parents were against it. Uh, they didn't accept to help me and support me. And therefore, I went back. Then I realized that I made a mistake. Then I, this is when I made my big decision. And I moved here with $1,000 in my pocket. Lived in a basement apartment. A lot of people helped me. Shared basement apartment. I wasn't alone. Funny, yesterday... I got a call from that landlord of that basement apartment to chat with me. I'm still a friend with her. And, you know, life was tough. When I wasn't sleeping, I was working. How old were you at this time? 
uh, was 20 years ago, like 25, 26. And li- life was very tough and had had to work at a coffee shop. People won't give me a job because people thought that I didn't have the Canadian experience needed to, to be in my, to be in, as a gemologist or in the jewelry industry. But the time that we all need to invest to deserve what Canada offer. And usually I always tell people you need three years, a full three years. The first year you probably end up with a job that you don't love, but that's the way you get to find out about Canada and Canadians and you appreciate that. And then slowly, slowly you'll get an opportunity. And I did, I got an offer from it. Uh, first I had to work at a jewelry store for free and I had to work in coffee time at night shift to make some money. And, uh, and I did. And until I got another offer from another jewelry store with money, and that's where I had to stop selling coffee and uh, went to sell jewelry and watches. And from there, I partnered with someone on a sweat equity basis. Basically, uh, someone wanted my expertise and gave me a small share in her business. And that was my first opportunity to own something and move from being a staffer to own something or a percentage of a company. And slowly, slowly, it came to where I am today. That company was Paramount? That was the first share that you got no it was a jewelry store okay so it was still jewelry so then how did you yeah. transition from a jewelry store to a shawarma store <laughs> well i always say you need to be prepared for the opportunity a lot of people and i i have a lot of funny story where people say you know what do you do for a living uh, when they see you're driving a nice car or you're wearing a nice suit and, and that was like maybe four or five years ago not now i think people now know a little bit more about payment but i always say I sell shawarma and, and, and people think, oh, you're lucky. No, it's not about being lucky. It's about being prepared for the opportunity. We all, like, we're all out there and we're facing opportunities. We see opportunity. Opportunities come your way every day. It just, there is people avoid those opportunities. They do not want to even be courageous enough to take them on. And they feel like that's safety. And, some people are cut out to be business leaders or entrepreneurs or not even leaders in business. And others are not. They just prefer a salary and nine to five a job. And that's not the definition of a business leader and or not the definition of being in business at all. So if you want to be in a nine to five a job, don't open a business for sure. I still work 20 hours a day and I can't stop smiling all day long because I love what I'm doing. And Corona, not Corona. This is part of business. Business have a lot of hiccups. And in businesses, there's a lot of down times. And this is where entrepreneurs are tested. And either you believe very, how much you believe in what you do. And this is when you show it. So giving up is not, is not something that usually entrepreneurs know, and nor they do. So I walked in one day, my wife called me and wanted a kilo baklava. And she pointed out this restaurant in Dixie and Eglinton behind the police station, industrial area. So I, uh, I was driving, complaining in my head, what is this place? Like, like what am I going to find baklava behind the police <laughs> station? And then I, I get to this place and called Paramount, but was nothing Paramount about the place. And the door handle was broken everything. Walked in, ordered a baklava, and the owner has seen me in one of the articles talking about me, because one thing I don't, I don't share a lot usually. I don't know if you know all the swatch kiosks, the swatch watch kiosks around the city. I built yep. them. 
No way. That was my concept. Yeah, that was my concept. All the kiosks so, from malls that you see, right? Yeah. All, all, all of those kiosks selling a swatch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the swatch kiosk brand was mine. I took uh, I, I took that, that, that project from Swatch in Switzerland. I saw it at the airport and I brought it to Canada and then Swatch bought it back from me. Uh, and uh, yeah, so there was an article about me building a Swatch kiosk and then Swatch International took it back over, took it over. And this guy has seen me in that article and great man came from Dubai with a great concept. He's roasting coffee beans and peanuts and selling a bread and some and baklava, very well-known baklava. He was apparently, because my wife sent me there for it. So I ordered uh, a kilo of baklava and he turned around and asked me to lend him money. He said, would you lend me $250,000? I said, no, I don't know you. So And then he went on and continued to say that the life of the 16 chefs that he brought with him from the Middle East will be depending on me helping him. Otherwise, he'll bankrupt within four or five days. And all these people will be uh, basically deported. And this is where I handed him my card. But it's one of those things. You hand your card and you're not sure what are you doing. And <laughs> so I handed him my card and I said, look, uh, call me. I don't know you. Just came for a kilo of baklava. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. But then I got to the car and it did hit me. <clears throat> and I always tell people but that you need to decide who you want to be in life. Because helping others and standing up and making a real difference in people's life and in, in your own life as well, 90% of the time comes as a coincidence. Like it's not like you get a time to prepare. It comes like as, as a surprise, as a coincidence to you. So you have to be ready. You have to to have decided who you want to be in life. Are you going to be a stand-up person or just someone that just look after him himself only is just fully focused on his own growth, only him, 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 and or me, 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 or not somebody else? And what kind of a human you want to be? And I always say you need to decide that ahead of time because those, like those moments come usually as a coincidence. So, I, so I got into the car and it hit me. And I'm like, oh my God, that was me. I was that guy one day. I needed people to help me. I needed Canadian to help me. And people had helped me to become who I was at the time. And that's much smaller than who I am today. Uh, before Corona, I'm not sure how small or big I'm going to be after Corona. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But that's the truth. Like that's the state of mind of entrepreneurs. And, and I'm comfortable to talk about it because I don't want, I don't want business people and people who invested in their business and in their dreams to actually be shy and keep it inside to say, hey, Corona affected everyone. And it did. And the biggest problem today is psychologically to admit that it's okay to be affected by Corona, but what's next? How can we make it better? How can we go back to before and better, right? Or maybe different, go back to a different solution, but better for everybody, for, for, for your business, for your staff, and for the community. So <clears throat> the bottom line is, I called the man same day. And I said, look, I don't know if I can help you. I don't think I have the money you're asking for available. But I just want to hear more about it. So I, he came. I decided to help him. I freed up some money from investments that I had, small investment here and there. And, and 
was close to almost a lot of, 90% of the money I had at the time. And I helped him. I gave him the money three days after he called me and he said the money's gone. Uh, what did your wife say about that? Uh, she actually, she always thought I was crazy. But on this particular point, she said, if you feel right about it, go ahead. But I, like, you don't know the guy. And it's not like an industry you can jump in and take over if there is a problem. Because you're a gemologist and that's the restaurant. And knowing you, you don't know how to fry an egg. So why would you jump in and help a restaurant? So I'm like, yeah, thank you. <laughs> like it was too. She's giving me her opinion and jabbing me a little yeah. bit probably, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, she's always supportive. She's been all her life supportive to me and to my craziness and so many things I do and so many fights I, fights I took on in my life, uh, you know, and 90% of them were not for me or my children, but for other people and put them, put my family at risk. But look, I'm, I'm saying it and I'm smiling instead, right? So basically, I decided to help the man and I came back and I said, don't move, don't go anywhere. He said he was very sad on the phone. He said, Revenue Canada froze my account. And regardless if they release it or not, I just want to go back to Dubai. So I said, don't move, I'm coming. So I came, I showed up and I said, look, I did this because of the staff, for you and the staff. If you do not want to stay, that's fine, but we need to save the staff. So I called them all in for a meeting and everyone remembered that meeting because everybody thought I was announcing that we're going to shut down, they're going to shut down because I'm going to take over the place and sell the equipment to get my money back. And I said, what if all of us come together and turn this to a Middle Eastern restaurant? Even if we don't make money, we break even, you guys will stay in the country. And for me, I just wanted to tell you something. I never do a business just because it's profitable. Never. I've never done that in my life. It has to have something that satisfies the way I was brought up. And the way I was brought up, I was brought up in a house where there was a shoebox, and the shoebox, it says Sadaka on it. And my mom used to give us, let's say, $5. And she used to give us the last $1 split in four quarters because she wanted us to put a 25 cent in that Sadaka box before we leave the house. So I lived in a house where I believe more you give, more you make. I know with KPMG doesn't work or, or Ernst & Young, what I'm saying as a business formula, but it had worked for me. So it's been always like this. More you give, more you make. And my mom and my dad always made us believe that more you do good, healthier and wealthier you be. But most important than wealthier, happier. So I am wired in a way that I'll only be happy and I'll only be blessed and my business will, on, will, will only strive if has something to do with the community has something to benefit others so it cannot be only benefiting one person so if today you tell me there is the biggest deal in the world selling masks and i'm gonna make several million dollars i'll be thinking how can i donate the money how can i raise the money and donate it not how can i make money from the masks so i will not do a business that has gray shady color to it or writing an opportunity because now people need masks, let me make money off masks. That's, that's, that's not the way I am wired. So you have to be wired a certain way. 
So since I came to Canada and living in Italy during the Iraq war and being treated badly as being Middle Eastern in Europe and judged because there was a problem between the American and Iraqis, let's say, just because I'm Lebanese and have nothing to do with both anyway, <laughs> like students in the school at the university treated me badly. So, and I stood up. I stood up against it. I, I've stood up for what's right all my life. That's what I, that's what I was, I grew up to do. And standing up for what's right never scared me. And I grew up knowing that you need to stand up to bullies. And that's the only way you actually stop bullies from being what, for do, from doing what they do is to standing up against them. And I do believe in strength of numbers, but only if you voice it, not being silent. And we'll talk about that deeper. So basically, I thought Paramount would have actually gave me an opportunity to show that a Muslim, an Arab, a Middle Eastern immigrant can do a greater job in Canada. And it's a good way to say thank you as well to all the Canadians that helped me by employing more Canadians, Canadians from different backgrounds. And the best way, actually, to get to know people is about food, uh, around food. And, and I think maybe because I'm a restaurateur, but I wasn't born a restaurateur. I'm a gemologist as well. But I think the solution of our world problem today, people need to break more bread together, get to know each other. Because when you, 90% of and there is a study, actually, from Harvard University, 90% of people, when they start sharing a meal together and sitting on a table and sharing a bread, breaking bread together, they put all their agenda aside and they start talking about their children sometimes. Yeah, it's like they kind of relax, they kind of mellow out, zone out. Yeah. It's more, a lot more conversational, you know? Yeah. And you talk, you get comfortable and you talk about your children and sometimes even about convictions and sometimes about, right? And, and I think, you know, I thought it's great. We'll help these 16 chefs. We keep the business open. I don't lose my money. But it's a stage where I could actually, and one last thing, every time I used to go to eat at a halal restaurant or a butcher shop, used to be a messy experience. Used to be a preparation psychologically to lower my standards. Then you go to an Italian restaurant or any other place, Canadian restaurant, and then the standards are different. And it used to bother me. We used to present ourselves in the wrong way. And there's nothing to blame the people that came before me to the industry. But I think the restaurant business used to be is like the taxi driver business. Like this is the first job that immigrants run to do because they're, they're, whatever they study or they did was, or their experience wasn't considered good enough for being employed in a Canadian job. So they used to go to do those two jobs and sometimes get stuck on those jobs. And they used to actually open restaurants based on the budget they had and as much as they can afford to do it. And that wasn't representing well the Middle Eastern restaurants or the halal restaurant in general because, you know, halal and cleanliness, halal and good presentation are the same meaning for me. It's halal by definition is the cleaner, the the, the more well presented, the the, the 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 best food you can ever that processed from the animal the way they fed to the processing to the entire thing all the way to the cooking, right? And that's to me, and it was presented the wrong way. So there was so many opportunities on getting into, except one thing that I didn't know what 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 I, what I was doing, and and I had to rely on the great people to do it. And let me tell you, 
I think that was the best, best business strategy by mistake. <laughs> Relying on your team is the single one thing, reason of success in your business. And today my team is much smarter than I am. They have much better idea than mine. They have much better strategy for Paramount than my own strategy alone. And together we made Paramount, the Paramount with the DNA of the culture of a company where people and purpose before a profit. And the only way you can get a profit is by looking after your people and have a company that's full of purpose. Otherwise, today's community will not support you anymore. Mm-hmm. Do you still have some of those same team members from the beginning? Absolutely. Nice. Those are our frontline heroes. They're still with us. How do you have time to do all these different campaigns? Because I always <laughs> see you doing something else. And like I know you run, you run Paramount, and then you have your foot in so many different fields. Like, How do you schedule all this? Well, I mean, it's true. Look, I, I don't believe that work and life, personal life balance exists. I don't believe it does. It's not how many times you show up at home. It's the important moment that you have to be beside your children, your, your family, your wife, and everybody. It's, it, when it means and matters the most to be there, you have to be there. But you can't run a business and mirror the same thing to the community. Look, my children, I don't believe, are my only three boys. I think the children of our community are, are my children and everyone's children. And this narrow thinking of me, I'm okay and everybody else is fine. Uh, it's not my problem. That's not what I learned. Listen, that's not what Islam taught me. And that's not what Canada taught me. And you know what I love the most about this? That I came to a country where everything that Canadians do, we did at home. We did in our village. We did in our city. Yeah, like what? Like giving back to the communities, mm-hmm. like helping others, like setting an example, right? So I've done all this back home and I came here and I found that people do celebrate that, right? So it's easy, it was easy for me to navigate and, you know, the most important thing that you can't lose is yourself. And if Canada's value, if Canadian values and principles were completely different than where I came from, I would have lost myself and I didn't know where to fit. And that's why I'm very surprised when I see a lot of people trying to fit in. Fitting in is easy. Be yourself. And I don't want Bilal to become Bill. I don't want Mohammed to become Mo. Because you actually fit in. And our diversity is something that opens conversation. And Bilal's name probably will open a conversation with Andrew. My friend Andrew will say, oh, Bilal, what does that mean? And that, but when your, your name becomes Bill, doesn't open a conversation anymore. Yeah, it just stops at Bill. <laughs> and and it has much bigger influence on you, on you, the person that decided to change their name, thinking I'll become more Canadian by becoming Bill. You don't become more Canadian by becoming Bill. You're as Canadian as it gets by being Bilal. And we should say more that, celebrate more that. And we should actually celebrate it at all levels. And that's very important, right? So... So for me, it was very easy to maintain who I am, what I stood for all along, and put it into a business and DNA of the business. Ten years ago, when I used to tell my team, instead of being on CP24, why don't we help a charity? They used to say, well, this one brings customers, this one doesn't. 
Today, they say this one brings customer, this one brings support. So they changed and they bought in. They bought in because their children now are proud of them for being part of a company that does well into the community. So how do I schedule all this? Well, by giving those tasks to a lot of people, trusting people. Look, I always say hire the best and don't accept the second best, right? And I always, and I'm not talking the best that people already have the experience. No, the best the people who has the grit. They're ready to learn. They're ready to make it happen. Look, I'm a CEO of a company that went to take over Sufis without telling my team. And after one hour, I called them and I said, I need 10 staff to open the restaurant here. And they found the 10 staff, right? Other company will say, or other team member will say, oh, you know, I wish you gave us a week ahead time. I wish you gave us a notice. Where am I going to get the staff from? My team is, are going to complain. It's out of the way. I had a franchisee calling me saying, we're ready to go work there. Even owner of businesses saying, we're ready to go help them, right? It's all about the DNA. And it's all about the vibe that you create within your business, right? It's all about the thing that becomes the normal in your business. And jumping on board of someone in need and helping them out, it's the norm in Paramount. It's the norm. Within our team, it's the norm, right? So it's not like, oh, Mohammed just called and he needs 10 staff. I don't know this guy every time he does it. No. The norm is, oh, Mohammed is doing this. He needs five, 10 staff. Who's off? Let's call them. Let's see it. It's how to make it happen, not if we're going to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah I, yeah, like I always say that whenever you try to promote a campaign, like you always go to the people where you know that can make a difference. Like you go to Superfan, you go to Bonnie Crombie, like just some people who can actually reach the masses. Uh, you guys kind of have like an Avengers team for getting some sort of support and getting the community together. I actually like that question because, you know, as you saw, there is some people on Twitter and saying, why don't you just donate the $10,000? Why are you asking people to tweet it? Well, it's very simple math, okay? If I have donated the $10,000 and nobody have found about it, the food bank would have got only $10,000. The food bank is getting $660,000 so far up to today. <laughs> like, look at the difference, yeah. right? Yes, I had to call Superfan. Yes, me and Bonnie, we were calling Sam McDaddy and other people that have influence and Bianca and all these people. They have following. People who has following and setting an example. Look, if I see somebody in the restaurant industry doing something and it's successful, I'm in the restaurant industry, maybe I should join them. Or maybe I should do like them. And if we can teach philanthropy, that would be great. Right? And people are saying, oh, well, maybe Mohammed is trying to advertise his business by donating $10,000 and doing something good while they advertise this business. Guess what? Anyone who thinks that, well, let them donate $1,000. I'm happy to jump up and down and advertise their business because a thousand dollars could feed probably 20 families, 25 families for a month. I'm happy to advertise their business. And we as a community want their business advertise and succeed because hopefully they'll donate more because businesses who donate take away even from marketing and prefer philanthropy as a marketing tool are much better than preferring marketing as marketing tool. Because they're not only marketing themselves, they're as well benefiting others. So I'm okay with that, with people that actually doing it only for that. Let me tell you something. When I put it out in public, I'm targeting several people. 
I'm targeting the people that does philanthropy because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I'm targeting people that does philanthropy because it's a marketing thing to do. I'm targeting the people that their envy of public, their face to go out in public to say that, oh, Muhammad does it, maybe I want it too. But the bottom line, what do I want? Is the campaign to reach that amount and get the help to the poor people in the Muslim Saga Food Bank and get the help to the poor people that lost their children in Flight 752 in Iran. So the bottom line is helping the community. And then when I unpack every single one of them, if I can get any of my friends that decided to actually part with their money instead of going buying themselves a watch or a suit or anything, to consider that money to help someone else and get themselves some benefit of them being known, being philanthropists. Look, as a community, we become what we celebrate. And I want everyone to repeat this sentence if you like it. I, and if you don't like it, just think about it more often. So if we become what we celebrate and we celebrate philanthropy, we'll become more philanthropists. If we become what we celebrate and we celebrate business success, we'll push our children to do better in business because they want to be celebrated. So we become more philanthropists, more successful in business. If we celebrate compassion publicly, we become more compassionate. So we become what we celebrate. So celebrating on social media, someone's donation to help the needy and the poor is going to be a small step to help us to become what we celebrate, more philanthropist and more helpful to the community. Uh, you have your own foundation, right? The Faki Foundation? I do. Uh, so how does that play a part or does that even play a part with your campaigns? Well, usually a foundation will have goals and will have focused what the foundation is going to do or not. And quite honestly, foundations are complicated, not easy to run, uh, very too much paperwork. But in a lot of the bigger campaign, a lot of the company do not want to support it just a Mohammed Fakih campaign without proper organization, the paperwork and everything. That said, I never do a campaign, including the food bank. You know, the food bank is a nonprofit organization, well-known, plus very reputable, plus they issue a tax receipt on their own. I'm not touching the money. When we did the uh, campaign for 752 flight, was Toronto Foundation running it? It was the city, was Denton LLP. So I'm always, like when, when I cannot include it in my foundation, I do it to the extreme type of paperwork and transparency as if the foundation was involved, right? So the foundation does a lot of refugee work, does a lot of uh, uh, nonprofit like Malala educational work, right? Yeah, you Um, sat down with Malala, right? Yes, I did. I I actually invited Malala, to to, to, to one of the people who invited Malala to Toronto. Uh, what did you guys talk about when uh, you had that discussion? Well, I mean, me and Malala had a couple meetings, but one of them was a bigger event uh, with the Ryerson University. Before that, there was an event uh, with less, like smaller group of people. And we were talking how to get involved in women's education and how important is that. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, uh, her life in the UK and how different is that? I mean, for someone that left her country and went there at the young age and everything that she went through and how much her fame is affecting her life as a person. 
right? I, I, I'm more interested, quite honestly, with the actual work. How are they deciding where each school is going? Where they're doing it? How they're doing it? And her, as someone her age, how much is living her age still, right? How much her living her life? Is she going to turn around in 20 years and say, what happened to my <laughs> years from 15 years old to 20 or 25? You know, I didn't feel it because I was busy doing one, two, three, right? And is that a trade that she wanted all along or what? Like, does she enjoy it or it's almost someone now, <laughs> like she lives in that uh, life and she wants to continue because people are expecting her to continue, not because she loves doing it. I love what I do. Right, I love what I do. The way I schedule it, I don't know. I find the time. When you want something done, you get it done yourself. But you don't do it alone. You get it done yourself by deciding I'm going to get it done. And then you implement it by help of a community beside. You know how many people text me and email me that if there is volunteer work, they're happy to help? A lot of people do. And I do take on some of those opportunities and I ask them to help. But you won't do it alone. But alone, you have to decide that you need to make it happen. And when is it enough? You need to ask yourself, when is it enough? And to me, it's never enough. If you ask me, I'm not doing enough. We all can do more. I can do more. Right? I can do more. I still can do more. As much as people think, oh, he's all over the place. He's, he's everywhere. He's this, he's that. Well, you know what? Really, quite honestly, I just put my head down and I'm very focused. I know what I want. I want to help. Any opportunity that I feel like the, I could make a difference, I want to jump and help. Right? Uh, do you ever burn out? Like, do you ever feel like this is a bit too much? We all do. We all do. We all do. We all do get those moments. Like the last five days of March, they were very difficult for me. Very, very difficult for me because I was about to make a big, huge decision about staff, people that I love, people that I think they're the best in the industry and I can't have them with me anymore. And I had to make, like, honestly, I didn't end up making the same decision that I thought I'm going to make, which is much bigger scale than I, because I thought the whole thing is going to go for much longer. The government are not, they're not going to help. And they've done an amazing, amazing job. The federal government, including the provincial government, they've done an amazing job in this pandemic. But at the time I thought we're on our own. And here I am the same position when I landed here with a thousand dollars. I have no help, including the best, the closest people to me, they're looking at me and saying, is it my turn that you have to let me go? Or whose turn is it? And I didn't have let go anyone yet. <laughs> but psychologically, everyone's hearing what's happening in the market. So they were very, very, very tough days and nights for me. And I felt burnt out because I doubted my, what I call my noble mission. And my noble mission is people and purpose before profit. Say that again. People and purpose before a profit. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, how am I doing that? Was I a lip service person? Because now I'm letting go people. And how is that before a profit? And, and funny, it was right in front of me, this, the, the answer to that. But as usual, I'm someone, and to all of you listening, find mentors. Mentors are your most important asset in your life after your, like your employees and people purpose, but people include your mentors, your support structure surrounding you. Those are very important for you to make you a better person. So I start calling my mentors and 
And they said, but that's fine. But if you continue doing what you're doing and the company goes down, how is that better for the staff? <laughs> like, so you need to find a way in the middle. And funny, and like four days after, I woke up finding a solution that makes everyone happy. And in a way, without going against what I always believed in, and like, it was a feeling of coming out of a coma. Uh, wait, so what was the solution? And is uh, The solution is or? for my executive team. Was the solution of taking a vacation time when they, they had some vacation and topping up their, uh, the people who doesn't want to work to give them the top up, mm-hmm. right? So working with everybody, basically working with everybody. And, you know, some people said, look, I really, I have kids at home and my wife is a nurse. I can only work three days. So what can I do? How can we work it out? So, you know, we came together as a team and some people said, you know, let's help the hourly staff. I'm not worried about us executive. Let's do this. So, you know, we came together as a team and we resolved it. But it's just the feeling. The feeling itself is like coming out of a coma. I actually thought I lost my noble mission. And I thought that was, that I'm being, the test, I, it's a test that I couldn't pass. And I did. I, and today I'm telling you that Paramount will come out, inshallah, stronger than before. Right? And that wasn't because of money. It's not cash flow. It's about human to human relations it was our people and our community support again people and purpose safe payment right wasn't the cash flow wasn't the money at all do you think your current plan can be stable within like the next few months or how long do you think no no no, no. our industry <laughs> honestly like it's a Hiroshima for the restaurant industry. And I'll tell you, I was writing, yeah, I was writing this morning something and I'll share it publicly in the next week probably. So I woke up at, I always wake up around 4.30, 4 a.m. And I was writing. And I was writing in stages that I believe our industry is going to go through. And the most difficult one will be, the, one of the most difficult one was in the beginning of this, but the second most difficult one, and I think is going to be the more dangerous one for restaurant to disappear, is when we reopen this, the economy. When we reopen the economy, so I'll just give you an example. Yesterday, I met with somebody that's very good in business, someone with a lot of experience. Definitely, we didn't meet for business because we're, we're exercising all this physical distancing and everything. But I met to give them something. And two words. Are you still open? I said, for takeout, only 10% of our location. Oh, you're okay. I'm like, okay. <laughs> How are we okay? We have 60 location. We have 60, 70 something location around the world and only 11 open. So how, are, how is that okay? So the assumption of the restaurant business be okay just because they're open of takeout is wrong. I'm saying to everyone is wrong, right? Uber and delivery platform charging restaurant during the pandemic 30 to 20, 20 to 30% on the orders is wrong. I thought Uber did a free, uh, no. what was it? Free. They discounted for a very time. short period of time and they went back. No. Uh, because I think I just used Uber last night. I, I got a, I went to. Um... Uber for you, but not for us. Oh, for the restaurant tours. Okay. Yep, yep. See, that's what mm-hmm. everybody misunderstands. Mm-hmm. They think that we do not get charged. Yep. We got charged 20 to 30% of our sales. Right, right, right. Yeah, and that's we're always the, thinking about just a consumer yes. side of it. 
Yes. So we got charged as much as labor. Labor in a restaurant is 25 to 30%. And Uber is a, not only Uber, I don't want to be against Uber only, but all these delivery platform in a restaurant is 25 to 30% as well. And what happened is 80% of the sales used to be sit down. Only 20% used to be, so you, it's okay on 20% of the sales, but now it became 100% of the sales. So the biggest difficult part will become when we open economy, landlord wants for rent, all supplier wants all their money, right? Hydro comes back into the bill when the restaurant business is going to be still a slow down to come back to get back the sales. Because people are going to need six months before they feel confident to go sit beside someone to eat at a restaurant. And even if we distance the table, that means bigger restaurants, bigger rent for lower sales. So that's going to be not easy at all. So this is going to be the period. So I was writing this op-ad slash presentation of the new, how the new restaurant will look like, what is the most the most important point that the new that the, the restaurateur need to focus on the new norm when we reopen the economy. And I found that that period of time is going to be the most difficult where you're going to find. You're going to be celebrating that some of your preferred restaurants and businesses reopen, but you don't know that we're more like a duck looking very pretty from on top of the water and struggling under the water. And some will disappear in that period of time where people will not feel that, that that possible because they reopened. And this is where they're going to fall more rest of the time. Mm-hmm. How can people get to uh, learn more from this presentation? Is it going to be something live or are you going to publish this online? It's up to you. We can do a live session, me and you, and talk about it. and Or we can do... Uh, I will be publishing something in li- online about it, but I... I'm probably going to do a video as well and put some financial measures uh, because like uh, Yoda from Star Wars said, you know, there's no, there's really no knowledge worth keeping or having unless you share it with others. Mm-hmm. And I never believe there is a competition. I never do. I know there is a competition in business, but I think I believe in meant to be. And I believe that when you work hard, what's meant to be for you to come to you will come only to you. I, I used to own a jewelry store in Beirut in a jewelry market with 300 jewelry store next door to me, door to door, wall to wall. And if somebody come ask about Mohammed, they'll ask him the short guy or the tall guy and which <laughs> Mohammed you're talking. And we used to send the customer to each other and instead of trying to take it away. So because we believed always marketing the industry and that market of jewelry, jewelry market in general will bring more customers to the jewelry market and everybody will get better. And I think we need to market the restaurant industry in general and small businesses in general. And it doesn't matter who gets this, this piece of the pie today, the second person will get it tomorrow. So I'm okay to share the information and I'm actually all about sharing information with people. But even when I go to the profit loss statement of the restaurant industry, even if I was a hairdresser, I would benefit. And if I was a toy shop, I would benefit. And if I was a clothing shop, I would benefit because it does apply to all of us. Do you ever find that you're still interested in uh, gemology? Like, do you ever... Oh, I, I think I'll retire doing that. Yeah? I think I'll retire opening a small watch shop mm-hmm. and shine the watches all day long and putting the time together for every single watch in my window 
and talking to customers. Look, let me tell you, I'm, I'm not a CEO. I think inside of me, I'm a staffer dressed up in a suit and my business card says a CEO. I'm a staffer. I love talking to people. I enjoy more a cleaning table and talking to customers and their children and finding out about their life than sitting at the office and dealing with, uh, you know, bigger size issue. I like a strategy, right? But I don't like the office. I like people. I like to be hands-on. I like, I like, what I like about the restaurant industry is serving tables. I love serving tables. And I love the staff. I love, yeah, I love high-fiving with the dishwasher, talk to the server, understand what they do after work, you know, see if I can sense that leadership within the people when they're, when they're young, you know. And, and I love that part, you know, more than being at the office. Did you ever cook at Paramount? Like when you first started up, did you ever have a role as like a cook or a chef or did you always? Oh, you have to. Mm-hmm. You have to. You have to. You have to. And I'll never forget. And one time, uh, you know, I was just learning the bakery and, uh, you know, I had a baker that was upset with another baker. And, and they, I think they thought that they could put me in a corner and they both said, I will not work with him. And the other guy said, I will not work with him. And I had this Saturday was packed. And I'm like, sure. Don't work with each other. Why don't you go home? Think about this. And let me know. Because I need to worry about my customers. And I need to worry about every single family that work under this roof. And I can't have this children game here going on so why don't you go home think about it and if you do not want to work with each other then let me know and we'll make a decision as a business but for us here the only way we can win we win together and you know that's paramount and you're saying you can't work with him and i'm saying work it out and one of them turned around and said no if i leave i'll never come back And I'm like, I'm going to suggest you to go home. Think about it. I'm going to consider you didn't say that. And I'm going to ask you to leave now, actually, because I don't want you to stay at work in a bad mood. I don't think it's good for you nor for the business. And I'm going to replace you. And I went and I replaced him myself. So I start making the dough, flattening the dough, and I worked the whole shift for him. And he came back and he's still with us. Right? But I gave him that 24-hour time with this smile, even if he was giving me hard time, gave the whole team hard time. You know, our business is teamwork. If the bread is late, the food is not going to be good. doesn't matter how, how the meat is good, but the bread didn't come to the table and the customer expected. So it's all of us coming together at the same time and doing it right, what makes the customer experience. And it doesn't matter how good your food is. Customer experience is account for 80% why businesses succeed or fail. Better than the food, the decor or anything. The whole experience together account for 80% why people will come to your restaurant. I always want to ask you about, um, you initially started the Paramount Butcher Shop, right? Because I liked your idea where you first began telling us about how in halal restaurants it, it wasn't as clean or it wasn't as... Usually I... I, I... Usually I try to <laughs> keep it less to talk about that because I don't want to negatively advertise the halal industry, but you're right. Absolutely. I always say it. Uh, but it's true though, right? Because it is yeah. up to the same standards, but just maybe because they just don't have the knowledge of those standards. Maybe they're not really aware of 
what cleanliness is supposed to be in terms of a restaurant setting. I don't know. But I always thought about that whenever I went to. I won't go into that because I'll upset a lot of people. I'm very straight shooter the way I speak. So Yeah, no worries. You know, if you go to any sort of Western butcher shops, everything is nice. They have a lot of different variety. If you go to a halal butcher shop, a lot of the ones I see in the GTA, they're just really running the down mill shops. They just have maybe a few selections. But then once I saw the Paramount butcher shop, I was like, this is really good. You know, uh, I've been to the one in Mississauga uh, many times when I'm in the area because I always like to get my ribeye steaks there, uh, my New York's there. And then you opened one up in Young and Eglinton. Yeah. That was a lot more convenient for me because I'm in Toronto. But then that one closed down. What happened? Or is there an issue with the trying to, I guess, market a halal butcher shop? How's that going? No. The uh, Young and Eglinton was the wrong location for us. Mm-hmm. And we had a flood there. Oh, and then as soon as we had the flood and we had to rebuild, we had an offer from somebody else to say, I'll take it and I'll pay you this much. So it was the right thing to do. We opened only a month, two months. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I'm like, yeah, it was crazy. I spent a million dollars. Mm. We spent a million dollars in that butcher shop. We put our heart in it. We put onyx. We put aging stone so we can age nice. your, yeah, I like yeah, it. yeah, we can age your New York steak and we can age all these things. But then what happened is the flood in the basement ruined a lot of the wood and then it traveled into the ceiling. So I had to respend another four or 500,000. Then we got an offer on it and we said, fine, it's great. That said, I, I actually think the suburb area are better for the butcher shop. Mm-hmm. Our butcher shop does as, as, is as busy as two restaurants put, put together. No Our way. Mrs. Saga butcher shop. We have five butcher shops in Lebanon. We have one butcher shop in uh, Ivory Coast, and we were building a butcher shop in London, UK, in downtown London. So the butcher shop business does very well for Piermont. I saw you have one in Pakistan as well, right? I have one in Pakistan. Yeah, nice. sure. <laughs> right. So basically, the butcher shop is great. It delivers a message of how does our meat in the restaurant look like before it's cooked mm-hmm. at the restaurant. Okay. We have a full commissary that prepare for the restaurants the same way we prepare at the butcher shop. And we ship every second day fresh to every restaurant. Yes, some a lot of people say one payment is a bit different. The execution is true. You know, consistency in the food market, especially when it comes to ethnic food, is very difficult. And when I was younger, a kid, I always said, how come there is no McDonald's like Middle Eastern and 500 locations? and you know, and apparently is the consistency and being able to repeat that ethnic food that half a minute on the grill makes a huge difference and one minute less on the skewer shawarma makes a huge difference in the taste. So we're there. We are at 80 some, 70 some location. Before Corona, we had 13 more location to come in 2020. We had a new concept called Boxed. And it's on our website, a brand new concept for Paramount. Different food. It has Middle Eastern twist, but it's not based Middle Eastern. Gorgeous concept. That I, I think with coronavirus, it became more important, more relevant, actually, because it's all based on app, touchless, digital platform, mm-hmm. right? So and it's not Middle Eastern food? What is it exactly? It's, a, it's healthier food with Middle Eastern twist. Mm-hmm. Okay. So all the dressing are Middle Eastern. There is hummus in it, but different than Piermont hummus, like truffle hummus, beetroot hummus, like different type of hummuses. All the sauces has tahini in them. Even the smoothies has tahini in them, right? So 
it's a more younger approach to the food. Like we we we, we put Piedmont fine food meals beside on the concept that we have in the food court. I think the concept in the food court we put the we put Piedmont in jeans and boxed. We put Piedmont in yoga pants. Mm. I would say, right? So it's more young, more healthy, but still with the Middle Eastern finishes. And we have a solid menu that is very healthy. But at the same time, we have a menu beside it for people like me that if I eat uh, sushi, I'll eat after an hour. And if I eat salad that it has avocado, I'll eat after two hours because I'll get hungry again. Mm -hmm. So we put a menu that you can add on, which is has your strip loin steak done in the Middle Eastern way and has a chicken that you can add on top of the salad. So if you want the salad separately, that's great. But if you want the add-on, it'll become a real strong meal that you can take with you. And if you want to eat healthy, you could pick certain, right? So it's a very, very smart way done by a very good chef that that does amazing work. He's done amazing work in the city already. So uh, was about to open in, uh, in March, first week. And the location is in King Street. Yeah, it's right beside the Starbucks. Uh, Young King, and King. Okay, right, right, uh, right by King Station. Yes. Yeah, we took the location beside the Starbucks, door to door, and nice. it's, the sign is up already. It was up there. Right? The location is ready, mm-hmm. and we do so. You know, it's just changing the way everything is going to be after this. Is that mainly an online platform, or is it like a sit down, or is it like a takeout? What is it more like? Uh, it has only. Four or five tables, mm-hmm. but mostly it's a grab and go, and it's all by app order or by iPad order. So it's very digital. More, it's like almost I knew about Corona coming <laughs> with mm-hmm. that concept itself. It's like so much. <laughs> yeah, coming back to the uh, the butcher shop, do you think you'll ever open up one in Toronto, or is that in the works? There is, it's in the work, and there is partnership as well. Like uh, we have a couple conversation with Loblaws. That they want Paramount to run a butcher shop within some of the Loblaws. Ooh, be nice. There is there is a great conversation with Raba, mm-hmm. where Paramount uh, Raba wants Paramount to do some butcher shop corners within the Raba because Raba is changing their re, their remodeling, their location to look better, and and they're remodeling their restaurant. Uh, they have some subways now and some Tim Hortons, so they want to replace some of their tenancy inside their location as well. So there is several partnership where we'll have our food available in more places available to everyone to reach instead of traveling for it. And and we're starting, I think, in two weeks. And that's the good news for you. You could actually order to pick up from our Paramount restaurant location some of our meat. No way. Nice. Yeah. So you could order from Toronto Eating Center or Young and Eglinton Restaurant. Mm-hmm. You can order to the butcher shop and pick it up at our restaurants. Nice. Perfect. All right. I'm definitely going to be doing that when the time allows. <laughs> because sometimes, uh, you know, you're craving a steak, but you can't really drive all the way to Mississauga and then come back. So uh, Young and Eglinton is definitely my go-to right now. We'll get it. We'll get it. For, we'll get it to you. <laughs> nice. When in, uh, my family or relatives go to Paramount, we always think about, is this authentic Lebanese food or is this kind of been westernized? Like if you were to take a grandmother from Lebanon and you gave her a piece of your shish talk or something... Is she going to be like, this is spot on? Or is it like, nah, there's not enough spice in this? Okay. So the barbecue part, 100%. The shawarma part is 100%. Okay, nice. Some, some, some of the salads, uh, 
some of the, like, for example, uh, chicken shawarma in Lebanon, they put French fries in it. In the salads? Yeah. Uh, no, no, in the uh, sandwich. Oh, the sandwich. Mm-hmm. So they put the fries in the chicken shawarma. Mm. And they don't put lettuce. So two weeks ago, I decided no more lettuce in the chicken shawarma following Lebanon. Right? So just to let you know, the recipes at Paramount, executed 100%, are doing very well in Beirut itself. Mm. So we're, we have stores in Beirut that does very well. Couple Like we have six now. Four of them do very, very well with the same recipe we use in Canada. So the recipes we're using here are doing well in Beirut, where everyone sells shawarma, everyone sells barbecue, everyone sells everything, right? So we're as close as it gets, except you'll go away, bigger the amount of locations, right? So let's say you're going to tell me, oh, there is one shawarma guy. I like his shawarma better. It's closer to the Syrian shawarma. Yeah. But as soon as he starts scaling, there are certain steps you need to take that takes it away maybe very small percentage, 3 4 5% away from how authentic you could be to be able to scale. So it's either you want to open a hobby restaurant and be 100% like Beirut, or you could be 93% like Beirut, and open a restaurant chains. And it cannot be both. All right, good to know. So now I know if I'm getting the the barbecue or the shawarma, it's pretty much authentic. Yeah, and the hummus is, the baba ganoush is 100%. So, for example, the fatouche, we, they, they have a couple small ingredients more in the fatouche, right? Uh, tabbouleh is good. The parsley here is different than Beirut. The parsley in Beirut is much smaller than the parsley in Canada. The garlic is 100% the same. Right, so we are as close as it gets, I would say. If I want to scale it, mm-hmm. if I didn't want to scale it, I can get closer, maybe four, three, four percent only. Not a huge difference. Nice. Uh, do you have any other campaigns coming up in terms of, I guess, trying to help out restaurateurs or anybody in general throughout this pandemic? Do you see, or do uh, do you plan them yourself, or do people come to you? How do you even? Can... <laughs> <laughs> it's. <laughs> I wonder I wonder the same. <laughs> so usually uh, the way it is, I see something wrong. I'll give you an example. Sufis. I heard about something happening wrong. Waited a day and I'm like, no, this person, this business should not shut down. This person should not feel fear in Canada. This is Canada is the best country on earth. The people of Canada are the best people I've met. And that person should not think that he's going to be left alone and let's help them. So I asked one of my team to tweet and ask about his phone number. And no one answered. Then I tweeted and they answered me. Someone answered me. I called that person, drove right there and decided to help. And there was no planning whatsoever. The Mississauga Food Bank campaign. Just one, one phone call. We literally called it the Mississauga Challenge. Three seconds before me announcing it. There was no preparation whatsoever. There was a need. And when there is a need, there is a way. Right? Some campaigns we do plan, let's say the uh, 752, we planned over 48 hours. I have five people not sleeping for 48 hours, and we launched it on Monday. And then the plan were ongoing. The legal part of it, the transparency part, were ongoing while we're doing parallel raising money, right? Is it me alone? Of course not. I have several people, very well-known people, like I have... Andrew Bevan, that used to be with the Premier of Ontario, he's one of my consultants and advisors on some of the campaign and the work I do with the community. 
He used to be the chief uh, for the Premier of Ontario previously. And he's done a lot of great, great work of policies in the country, uh, political policies, but at the same time, things that are in touch with people, like well, how, how people are affected, right? So I, I, I surround myself with the best people, not because I can afford them. I've always sub- surrounded myself with mentors that they are the best people. I was mentored by the CEO and president of former president of Tim Horton, right? I, I kept bugging him until he accepted to mentor me. I'm continuously until today mentored by Hazel McCallion, the mayor of Mississauga. So I, 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 know, I know what I don't know. And that's something to everyone out there. Please know what you don't know. Because when you know what you don't know, you'll get, you go after and after people that will, 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 will bridge the gap for you. And those are the mentors. I really wanted to, uh, to speak about, I guess, ways you could help people who might need some inspiration or maybe some, I guess you can say, words of wisdom on how they can come out of this pandemic a bit stronger. Because I see a lot of people, they might not feel like their business can survive. They are just down on their luck. So what do you have to say to people like that? Well, I, I, look, a lot of people open businesses and they're not ready to admit that they were not good even before the pandemic. Right? So for those people, maybe it's an opportunity to take a hard look. Is it the pandemic or the business? And it's not going to be easy to come out. Like, expect it to be before we come close to normal, not even full normal, 2021. I'm not saying about locking down, locking out, locking up. (laughs) I'm not a politician. I'm happy to do what I'm doing. But before we get back to the normal, normal, where people are very confident, feeling safe, like we need to actually deal with several new habits. The people have the habits now to go to the supermarket more than the restaurants. People just realize that restaurants maybe are not needed as much. I can get their food to the house, but it's better to maybe cook it at home. Right? So you're going to go through three stages. If you're not in the restaurant or you are, including cutting your hair, including a lot of things, people need to like really convince themselves internally that I'm okay to have someone that close to me to cut my hair now. And before a vaccine found, people are going to always have that self-doubt and the doubt of, am I doing the right thing for me? And the doubt of, am I doing the right thing for everybody else? Because with this virus, not only you're getting sick, you might be getting somebody else's sick. And those are two different types of stress that you're going to go through, right? Because it's one thing if I get sick, I'll deal with myself. What if I got somebody sick and I I hurt them? And they have asthma and I, I cause for them to really to harm their life or their family. So, so people have set certain new norms for themselves. And we need to work through that to change their habit. And we need to change even, and their financial situation has changed. So we need to change our menu to shorter, smaller, cheaper, still very good quality. People are going to be more picky on getting the best thing out of their money. So I think people need to talk to more people. You need more mentors now than ever before. Share your experiences with people who don't know. But for you, you're pressure testing your business and see if it's really like 
if you tell me you never sold more than $600 in your restaurants before, well, the chances are until 2021, you're not going to sell more than 600 And if that was losing, then maybe the business model was wrong. Yeah, it's a big eye-opener for a lot of people, for sure. Absolutely. And at the same time, you know now, before you were thinking, maybe in four months, I'll be okay. Now you need to know your business model will be good enough to stand on its feet till 2021. So you can't hope in three months you're going to be different and all of a sudden your store is going to be lined up and people sitting attached to people. People are going to take some time before they actually go and congregate like crowded places and accept to crowd. That's if if even the city will allow them to, <laughs> right? So you have the legal, like, like you have the rules, the policies first, then the comfort of people to do it. So... I always say to people, always be positive. I usually, when I have to even fire someone in my company, I walk in with a smile because you're actually doing them a favor because people are good. 99% of the people are very good at a lot of things, but they only get better and they show how good they are when they find a job that they find themselves in. And if somebody's not performing, not because they're not good, because they're just basically not finding themselves into the job. And by you telling them that, that's going to push them to get something else that they will fit in and they'll perform better, right? And if now you're pressure testing your business and it wasn't good, maybe that pressuring you to do maybe changes in your business model, not give up on your business. So talk to more people. Yeah, and, it's a blessing in disguise. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, and talk to people that are ready to tell you that your <laughs> your baby's ugly, the business, right? <laughs> like, hey, the, you, this PNL is not good, even if there was no pandemic. What the heck are you talking about, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So maybe that gives you now the chance to decide who you want to be and what is that business model that's going to survive, and maybe. Is going to push you to changes that they were better than before pandemic. And to the people that that's not the case and the pandemic has affected them, you have to stay positive. It's all about within. I always say 90% of the problem in a company are within. 90% of the problem in someone's life are within. And if within you're okay and within you, you, you try to find the positivity out of the difficult time, that's 90% of the solution. And the 10% is execution. Right. I want to thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. I know you're no. I know you're a busy man, but this has really been great. Yeah, you got me to wake up early Sunday morning. I'm just kidding. I wake up very early. <laughs> Same with me. <laughs> just wanted to blame you for something. Just kidding. For our listeners out there who may not know too much about you, how can they get in touch or follow you online? Well, I'm usually never on social media. I have someone. <laughs> no, but I am the truth. I do, I'm the one who answered the private messages. Mm-hmm. But uh, the posting and everything someone else does in, on my mm-hmm. team. But message me. I'm happy to mentor. A um, couple outlets want me to actually do a discussion like this about details in business and details about the relation between business owner employees, detail about more things in details, right? And I will be doing that. So please, I will be marketing those on social media before we do them. And I'm happy to help i do now mentor around over 25 businesses and business people 
that they ask me questions by message or call me or set up, uh, you know, some FaceTimes and everything. And I'm happy to do that. People did that to me when I needed them. And they still, until today, do that. A lot of people help me now and mentor me on bigger decisions for me because you can never know everything. And different perspectives are very important to see it from outside the box, right? You can give me more ideas than a lot of other people that I surround myself with because you look at it from consumer point and and you're not affected by all the pressure that usually they are within the business, so, right? So everyone out there, I, I would say, don't think it's for business people is easier than for employees. Everyone got affected in this. Mm-hmm. I am very in touch with how how much employees and people with less opportunity or people who dependent on the job are affected and I'm, and I and I and I feel it. But business, a lot of business people I'm talking to are very very affected, even psychologically affected, financially affected. They can't sleep at night. They they have those nightmares of not being able to make it, like you mentioned today, Bilal. But so be kind, be kind to everyone, be kind to everyone, and be positive. Definitely stay home, uh, but be kind. Be kind, be positive. And if you saw what I saw, I can celebrate one thing in the pandemic. I saw Canadians one more time coming together. I saw that this country isn't just a country. It's one family, one bigger family. I saw younger people that started their businesses that have been mentoring and have been supporting and we're their client or they're our client, that they stepped up and start doing things for the community. What I saw is a country doing philanthropy together. And that's a beautiful. So if you want to look at something that happened during this pandemic that is so positive that everyone felt late on doing good. Everyone felt did I do enough? Everyone felt that maybe I'm not first. Let me talk about, let me help others first. And that's the positive. You, we maybe, and we for sure have lost some Canadians. We will be coming out of this like we came out of bunkers. We'll come out of our beautiful homes, give a hug to our neighbor. We maybe will come out less as number but we'll come out more in spirit, all of us, appreciating the fact how important we are to each other's life and appreciating the fact that every single one of us did something to help a human being during the pandemic. And that's the positivity out of the pandemic. I can't stop smiling about it because what I start talking about 10 years ago, my franchisee, every single one of them calling me today and say, we did this today. And we did that today. And that's a beautiful. We become what we celebrate. It's a great place to end it. Thank you so much for this. No, thank you.